The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 62 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. My guest this week is actually someone that I met a few years ago. We were um, panelists together on a cancer survivorship um, topic where we were talking about cancer and living beyond cancer. So I am so excited to have Athena Scalise wait here with me today. She lives in Northern Virginia with her charming Scottish husband, who she met in Bella Roma in 1998. And she's a mama to hardworking college student and a creative high school senior. She's also a fur mama to Tuppence, the mischievous cat. I have a couple of those. (laughs) And pup Princess Maisie. She has been on a wellness path for many years. And due to a lifetime of health challenges, including allergies, asthma, a stroke at age 39 related to previously undetected congenital heart defects. And triple negative breast cancer at age 41. And she discovered her tumor 14 years ago today, the day that we are recording, um, which is actually April 23rd. So congratulations on 14 years. That's amazing. Welcome, Athena. Thank you so much. I'm just very thankful to be here in every sense of the word. (laughs) Yes, that's, that's amazing. And one of the things that I really love, and I've been talking with so many long time survivors in the last few weeks, like, I feel like I've, I talked to a lot of young survivors and a lot of young people who were diagnosed at young ages. Um, and then I have had a lot of people who have been diagnosed at young ages and then have been thriving and really just doing fantastically for many, many, many years. So I'm so excited to have you share your story today. Let's go ahead and just jump in. Uh, Tell me about that day uh, in 2007, when you made that discovery. Yeah, so um, actually, my body spoke to me that day, and told me there was something going on. I just felt a tug, a pull on my chest, it, it was actually aching. And I'm, I was very small chested, and it was not really on my breast. It was above my breast. And I put my hand there just kind of going, oh, what's this, you know, and I felt what felt like a half of a walnut, you know, the half, the meaty part, not the shell, but half of a walnut under, under my chest. And that caught me by surprise. Now, in 1998, end of 98, I had uh, a fibroadenoma removed from my other breast. And so I kind of thought it was the same thing. I really didn't take it that seriously in the sense of thinking anything other than that. Um, so I called my doctor, you know, pretty much right away and says, Hey, I found this thing. She, um, saw me and ordered me to go get, um, you know, uh, a check on that. And, um, they did, you know, have questions about it. And then I went for the lovely biopsy. And so, of course, it's all a process. So mid late May, so about a month later, 
I went to this surgeon to kind of hear the results. I was very naive. I took my daughter. My husband said, I'll go with you. And I was like, oh, that's okay. You know, it was a work day. He goes, no, I'll go with you. And I think he just had this more instincts about this than I did. And I took my young daughter because she was not in school at the time. And we went in and the nurse said, oh, I'll go and entertain your daughter while you talk. And still no alarm bells went off for me. I was like, you know, and so it totally threw me for a loop when he said, you have cancer. I was like, ah, you know, and, you know, if I can back up a bit, you know, I've been very mindful of my health for many, many years because of all these other health challenges. Um, I ate organic. I bought all natural products. You know, I, both my daughters were home births and I did, I, they were vaccinated, but on a delayed schedule. So their immune systems could be stronger. I nursed them till they were almost two. I did all those things. I tried yeah. to be as, you know, as proactive as possible. And so, and why did I still get cancer? You know, that was just such a mystery to me. It, since then, I've had some thoughts about that because I've lived in Italy for eight years and when I lived in Naples for two years, several of my friends, at least four of us, ended up with some form of cancer. And we're, we were wow. all there for not a very long period of time. Well, since then, I've learned that they've had a history. Their, their Camorra, which is the Neapolitan mafia, ha- is in the trash industry. And they bury the toxic waste from the northern industries all around the region. So basically, they're poisoning themselves and everybody and through the water, through the soil, through the air. And so I suspect that had an, a contribution to make because there is no family history of cancer uh, of any sort. We're like a heart disease kind of family. <laughs> you know, We Mediterraneans, I'm half Greek, half Italian, and most of us have something related to heart health, you know. So it was just really out of left field for me to be, have this diagnosis um, at age 41 to being so young. And then, of course, um, as you mentioned, I'd had a stroke two years before. And looking back, most likely, I think that the cancer had a contribution to play because cancer creates a hypercoagulative state. It creates clotting in the blood and pair that with a congenital heart defect that was undetected created a perfect storm uh, where a clot could pass and cause a mini stroke, which tells me that there needs to be a standard because I'm not the first or the last to be screened for cancer when someone has a stroke, especially when there are no other explanations. I have a friend who had a pulmonary embolism Mm -hmm. and that is how they found her ovarian cancer because that cancer is known for throwing clots. So when there was no underlying condition and no history of heart disease and they started digging to find the source. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I could have potentially had a two-year head start on this cancer if there had been that standard of care to check for, you know, those markers or whatever. When someone has an unexplained stroke, uh, yeah, I have a congenital heart defect, but what caused the clotting, you know? And um, so anyway, that's how I found my cancer back in 2007. It, it spoke to me 
told me it was there. And I'm thankful for that because I w- probably wasn't as militant as I should have been in terms of checking for my, you know, lo- you know, checking my breasts every month. And so because, you know, I, so I was diagnosed in, in Mar, in May. And then the weight on the type of cancer was another step. Um, and when I went to see the breast surgeon, because we were trying to figure out, you know, lumpectomy, what's going to be the you know, standard of care, et cetera. Um, I think for me, it was almost a worse diagnosis to tell me I had, to, I had to go through chemotherapy. I'm like, what? You want to poison me? Here I eat organic. I don't like chemicals in my house and you want to poison my body. <laughs> yeah. It was just very traumatic to, you know, and, and let's face it, growing up, you see all the worst things happen, you know, when people go through chemo. Yeah, it was very scary to think of what the process of chemotherapy would be like um, for me and my body and my health. So that was like the second shocker was to be told I had to do chemo. Now, I had considered looking at alternative treatments. And, you know, because I've tried to be very health conscious and proactive and, you know, look at other options. But to be honest with you, back in 2007, there weren't any proven alternatives that I felt I could be confident would offer me, you know, the desired results. And I did not want to bankrupt my family or relocate us somewhere else. I had a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. I just wasn't prepared to put us through that. So I did choose the standards of care. And I have to say, even though I practice a lot of holistic things, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not against modern medicine. I still hear. 14 years ago on, you know, so obviously something worked and it wasn't my time, but you know, I, I, I think the biggest, you know, thing for me and how I dealt with it at the time was to seek information. I, I, I frightened my mother because I literally had a hundred books checked out of the library and she's like, what is this cancer university? I'm like, (laughs) I, I need to have taken information and understand what questions to ask. And there's a lot I can't control, but I can certainly have choices if I know what to ask and what to look for. So for me, it was information was power. Um, and um, so that was really important in the process of making decisions and even asking my doctor, my oncologist for statistics. He wasn't prepared to give them to me unless I asked for them because not, not many people want to know what the statistics are. And of course, learning I had triple negative breast cancer, which is for those who don't know, it means my, my cancer would not respond to targeted therapies that are out there for hormone driven tumors or Herceptin, her, her two, right? You had. Yeah. Her two. Yeah. Her two behaviors in the cancer cells. So. They didn't have really any special tricks up their sleeve for my type of cancer. They just could use the standard protocol of chemo, surgery, chemo, radiation, and hope it works. And triple negative breast cancer at the time, I don't know if that's changed, has a very high risk of reoccurrence within the first two years. So the prognosis was scary. And um, I believe you know, that's still the same. Yeah, because we don't, they don't have any other ways to navigate that kind of cancer. So, um, yeah, it was, um, 
I felt like at least I could use information and ask questions. So I did ask him about my statistics and that just helped me kind of in my, for myself, gauge my expectations and figure out, you know, what also if, you know, based on my statistics, what I felt would be worth doing or not doing in terms of my treatment, considering what the potential outcomes could be. So that was really important for me to feel like I had choices. I also hosted for my family a haircutting party. This is kind of a funny story story because, you know, I, I, I was starting radiation. I'm sorry, chemo in July. And I thought, well, I'm going to lose my hair. So my, my best friend from, uh, from childhood, Darlene and her wife came up and they helped me. I, I didn't know that Seth was uh under the radar barber she was crazy to cut hair and so it was a fun experience sort of but uh i, I have pictures to prove it but um basically she uh, i had them braid my hair into tiny braids on the top of my hair and each family member got to cut a braid this is gonna get me emotional now and to keep a braid for my hair and then we had fun cutting my shaving my hair. First, I got like the mohawk, then I got the tiger mohawk, and I just would cut it down until I had it all off. And then I realized my hair wasn't falling out. <laughs> and it took a while for it to start. I was like, maybe I shouldn't have shaved my head. You know, maybe it's not going to fall out and I just did it for nothing. So it was uh, kind of like, oh no, what have I done? But it was really, um, for me, another way of taking control in a situation I didn't have much control over. I said, well, I know my hair is or supposedly going to fall out. So I might as well be in charge of when it does. I don't want to wake up with it on my pillow or whatever. And um, also, it just helped the family to kind of be able to have something to share in, in this experience with me. Um, and so that was a very special moment. So that was kind of an interesting twist. Yes, for sure. I have always had really long hair and I'm looking at you as, as long as I've known you, you've had short hair, like you kept your hair pretty short. I was a little apprehensive to shave my head, but then when it started to come out, I was like, this is not sustainable. Let's just buzz it off. Mm -hmm. And I had similar, like it was coming out, but then once I shaved it, it stuck around for a while. So I just kind of had this like, buzz cut yeah peach fuzz <laughs> and there are days where I'm like I could totally do that again because there's something liberating oh, about yeah. like getting out of the shower and just kind of shaking your head as a, as I, I said like after the fact I was like it's kind of cool. like I wish my hair would be growing back faster but it's kind of cool I just shake like a dog and I'm ready to go well I I agree with you honestly I was like gosh, this is so nice. I don't even have to use shampoo. <laughs> when I was bald, I was like, I could just well, treat it like the rest of my body. But, you know, the thing is that um, I had long hair and I have, I grew it out afterwards as well, but then I hit menopause. Um, and I actually went into menopause due to the chemotherapy and, it, and then I came back out and then I went back in at age like 46, 47. We, it happens early in our family, but also I think the chemo kind of accelerated things. And then I started having hair loss again. And so I decided to cut it short and then things improved with a variety of things I've been doing. So I just find it easier for me to wear short hair. As a matter of fact, right now it's just too long, but that's 
temporary. <laughs> so anyway, that was that. And then, you know, as far as the next aspect of it, um, I don't know about you, but getting on those steroids to manage the nausea and stuff from the chemotherapy was the best present of, of all because I, it was like the energizer bunny. I, we, I actually oversaw um, the renovation of our house, you know, like some major like improvements to our house. And my mother's like, what is wrong with you? You should be resting and stuff. I'm like, I'm not tired, you know? Um, so I was like, we had removed a, a fireplace and we painted and we put in hardwood floors and it did all sorts of things. And, you know, I just had all this energy, go steroids. <laughs> but I'm really thankful I didn't have a whole lot of side effects to the chemotherapy. I knew another woman who had the same diagnosis as me and she just did not do well with the the medicines and so you know everybody is different and I'm just really thankful that that I was able to handle the medications and get through the treatments you know it was no picnic for sure and definitely had my issues but overall I I think I had more issues like afterwards the long-term stuff you know that you don't hear about too much but and then, you know, and then I tried to negotiate, like, do I really have to do radiation before Christmas? Can I just wait till after the holidays? Because I finished chemo in Thanksgiving, early November. And I had, oh, the other thing is dose dense uh, chemotherapy. I had to do every two weeks for four months. And, and then I had to give myself an injection of, was it Nupagen or something? Oh, to yeah. To boost the bone marrow because of the fact that we were doing them so close together because they really have treat triple negative aggressively. Yeah. Especially with my age um, being so young and gosh, that's yeah. Brings it all back. <laughs> but um, I was hoping to wait on the radiation till after the holidays. And they said, you know, we don't want to give cancer a break. We really want to hit it hard, hit it, you know, consistently. And so I lost that argument, but I guess it worked. <laughs> So what, do you remember what type of chemo you did? I did ACT. So adriamycin, which they call the red devil. And I can, I know why, (laughs) because it is a nasty stuff. As a matter of fact, yes, it is. And it comes out (laughs) the other end red too. Um, Yeah. So it's like eating beets, you know, you know, we've eaten them, (laughs) Uh, but you know, it's such a toxic chemical that they have to, they have to be really careful because it can burn your skin. So I had a subclavial port, uh, not subclavial, sorry. I had a, a port. Some women choose to do just in the, the hand, uh, but I did the port and, you know, those who do it with a hand have a little more risk of potentially getting the, the adriamycin on their skin. But anyway, it, it's not fun. And then the second one was, um, oh my gosh, it's been so long. I don't remember the name. Chemo brain is real. (laughs) It is so real. Yeah. It's the standard of care for anybody with a generalized breast cancer. So, and that is still the standard of care for mm -hmm. triple negative. Yeah. Yeah. And then the the third one was Taxol. So the C was it something clin. Is it clin, not clindamycin? Clindamycin? I think so. I think so. Or is that an antibiotic? <laughs> I feel like that's an antibiotic. Yeah. yeah. Or anyway, we'll look it up and 
share later. Yes. So yeah, so ACT, um, and that was definitely no fun, especially because I don't know if, if you if you've never gone through chemotherapy, you don't realize how many hours you spend sitting in a chair going through the infusion process. It's not just like hop in, hop out, you know, and you're done. It's like a multiple hours, depending on the time, type of cancer you have, you know, it can be all day. You can be going through an infusion process. Um, and so it's, it's time consuming. And then you can expect certain side effects to kind of roll through as time goes on, you know, in your days. And for me, I think it was almost worse doing the, the bone boosting, the white blood cell boosting injection because it made my joints ache. You know, yes. I felt like an old person. Um, so, you know, it's all that fun stuff, but honestly, um, you know, nine months from start to finish more or less in terms of my treatment for 14 years of not having to really think about it, you know, doing my due diligence with my mammograms until, oh, now I didn't talk about the surgery and all that, but I will, but doing, you know, to be here 14 years later, I, I feel like it was, it's almost like a pregnancy, you know, it's nine months of good and bad, and then you get a baby at the end. <laughs> Yay. But um, I got more time for my family and my kids and to do lots of things that I'm very thankful to have done. For sure. Um, yeah. Where did you have your surgery in the process? They chose to do, because it was a very, it was a 1C, my cancer was a 1C. So it was not, it was like two cent, just under two centimeter, millimeters, yeah. sorry. And oh, so it was tiny. No, two, no, two centimeters. Two I centimeters. Okay. Yeah. 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 And um, they chose to do surgery first. I didn't have to do pre-surgery chemo. Uh, and so they removed it and they figured the standard would be surgery, chemo, radiation, and good to go. And I had told myself if I ever had any other issues, I would go with the, the mastectomies because I didn't want to have this kind of constant fear that it was going to come back. And I had a tendency for fibroadenomas, so there'd always be that risk. So actually in 2014, uh, during my mammogram, they saw something on my other breast. And of course, you know, red alert, red alert. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I said, okay, it's time. They're coming off. So in January 2015, I did a, you know, a bilateral mastectomy and they found thankfully that it was just, um, you know, an, a fibro adenoma. Um, and what was also nice is I saw there was nothing else happening in the other breast post treatment. So that was extra peace of mind for me. And then in 2000, 18, I did some revision surgery um, on my my previous mastectomy surgery. Got a little upgrade too. <laughs> I they call the those same. cancer perks, you know. Yes. Yay! Yay, yes. cancer perks. <laughs> I I totally call that a I yeah. totally call that a silver lining in my because I also yeah. was fairly small. So I was like, well, all right, I'm getting an upgrade. I'm just taking them off. I'm getting an upgrade. I don't mm-hmm. want to have to worry about it. And it's, I think it's very common, um, what you said with like, so it was about seven years later that you mm-hmm. made the decision to, mm-hmm. to go forward with that. And I, I have found in people that I've talked to, especially who are many, many, many years out, um, that that is really common 
really common choice because we start to fatigue, right? Imagine what COVID fatigue is like right now for people where like people are fatigued having to wear a mask and imagine that you are going, you know, every six months or every however often your interval is to get screened and kind of wondering like waiting for the other shoe to fall off. Really? You just never know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, The other thing was the funny story is that when the first time I had my surgery, because of radiation, they tend to go be very conservative about putting in implants because I did a nipple sparing surgery. So they didn't want to damage the skin or have necropathy um, because um, of a too big of an implant, which wouldn't allow blood flow. So, and I might have said that right. Is it nec- necropathy? Or, I don't know. Yeah, um, necrosis, so necrosis. Yeah. That's the Basically word. Basically when, right. yeah. when the skin, when the cells start to die off because they don't have nourishment from the blood. Right. I knew it wasn't the right word. It just, again, came up right. <laughs> so um, it's my, real. every time I go to see my surgeon after the the surgery and uh, to go get checked and see that everything's healing. Even a year later, two years later, he'd always ask me the same question. I'm like, he gave me basically the smallest implant possible, like 125 cc's, which is about the size of the expanders before they expand you. So every time I go in, he goes, so those are the expanders? I'm like, no, these are the little things you gave me. Read <laughs> my it. file. Yeah. Well, and the reason why they were small is also, or I did direct implants was because of my stroke. I was on blood thinners. I was on blood thinners uh, up until about three years ago to manage the risk of clotting. And so every time I have any kind of intervention, I'd have to go off my blood thinners and it's a hassle and there's all sorts of things to do. And I didn't want to have to fuss with that to do, um, you know, the, the um, expanders and and do all those steps with also being on blood thinners. So for me, it made sense to just do direct implants. So because of the radiation thing, we had to go with small ones. So when I, in 2015, I was like, okay, now we can make them a little more realistic. <laughs> so I didn't go overboard. I don't look like Dolly Parton or anything, but um, you know, it, it was more proportional for me. Um, and that, like you said, is the silver lining. <laughs> Yes, for sure. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, um, I will be here with Athena and talking more about her journey. So stay with us. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social. Safely, of course. The important thing is that you wanna get started and you're happy to show up for yourself, and then you wanna stay in the game because it feels good to move and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a copy chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Athena and we have been talking about her journey 
uh, with triple negative breast cancer. And one of my kind of passion projects in talking with survivors is the survivorship components, like from a from a kind of nomenclature, like science nomenclature, they're starting to study survivorship because there are so many millions of us here in the United States and abroad who are living with, you know, living beyond our cancer treatment. Um, and those numbers are increasing every day, which is amazing and so so positive. But now they're starting to look at, oh, how do we need to support people in this post-treatment world that they're now living in? And I know there were so many components to that that no one really prepared me for. And by not being prepared for them, then they take you by surprise. And you, we were talking during the break um, and this was one that I was super surprised to learn about just a couple of years ago um, and that no one had told me. And it's the possibility for developing diabetes. And my doctor had, I was in fantastic shape when I was diagnosed and I had some drug interaction challenges that actually put weight on my body really quickly. And that weight was exponentially hard to get off. And my doctor had run my A1C, which had never been run before. I've always been of a healthy weight. And my A1C was like five. And she was like, this is getting into like a pre danger zone. Like we want to get this number down. And I was like, well, what was my number before? And she's like, well, we've never looked at your number before. And I was 10 pounds over like what would be considered a, you know, healthy weight for my size. It it wasn't a lot of weight. It was like a couple pounds and I have a lot of muscle mass on my body. So when you kind of look at the numbers, it was literally a few pounds. And I was like, well, what, what do I do? How do I fix that? And I was really shocked by that. And you had mentioned that as a, as a surprising thing that you had experienced as well, like just learning that. So, well, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, early, I, when I said I had like a hundred books, one of the things I didn't say was what looking at all those books about cancer and learning about my particular one and all that, what surprised me and gave me hope was to see that cancer was becoming more of a managed chronic disease or illness yes. versus a death sentence. There are still those that those sad stories of people passing from cancer obviously. But I saw that more and more people were thriving beyond their diagnosis and treatment and to me that offered me hope. Um so but very little conversation was spent on talking about what it looks like to be a survivor, how and what will be dealing with as long-term survivors, depending on whatever treatments we had, you know? um, And so things like lymphedema, I know you've had that. Of course, I, I had a sentinel node biopsy. So there's always the risk there for me as well. I have the sleeve and I actually have the machine thingy if I want to use it, um, you know, and I 
put my sleeve on pretty much only when I fly because it's, I remember it for that, but otherwise <laughs> I don't use it um, because I don't have it for now. Yeah. Um, and the weird thing is it can have pop up at any time in our life. Like it I can. can be, it can pop up a year later or 20 years later. So it's not like I'm out of the risk zone. Um, but then the other things like neuropathy um, and brain fog and libido, but the diabetes one that I just, what what shocked me was trying to understand why I've been pre-diabetic and I don't have any of the, the typical kind of triggers for a diabetic. I'm at a, a very low weight. Uh, I don't eat a lot of carbs and sugar. Now, there is a family history of diabetes. And when I did 23andMe, it did say I have a predis- say I had a predisposition. But my lifestyle isn't one that would necessarily push me in that direction. So right. it just didn't make sense. And then I read an article or saw something or I don't know where I saw it, but I saw that or maybe I even Googled it. Is there, you know, what's the link between diabetes and chemotherapy or something just to kind of because I've gotten to the point where I always ask what is, you know, where is this coming from? And and I'm very much an uh, information seeker. And so I was really shocked because nobody mentioned it. And honestly, when you say they checked your A1C afterward to see it was a fight, they should have checked it at the beginning before right. you had treatment just to have a baseline. If, if it is known to be a potential, you know, contributor, because I too gained 10 pounds with the, the steroids I was on. I was an energizer bunny, but I was also a, you know, a chubby energizer bunny because of, you know, it, that's what it does. And um, with breast cancer, uh, one of the first things my oncologist said to me, like we, we kind of intellectualize chemo means weight loss, but for breast cancer, chemo means weight gain, unless you're really intentional about like what you're eating and, and staying kind of ahead of it. That well, is a risk. Well, not only that, I mean, who's like running marathons when you're going through chemotherapy, you're resting a lot, you're sedentary. I mean, I, my mom was nice enough to live with me for four months and feed me home cooked food and I wasn't overdoing it, but steroids just put weight on you. That's just a given, but it's either that or live with nausea and maybe misery from the chemotherapy. So Mm. it's a trade-off, but they don't tell you these things, or maybe they didn't even realize it at the time 14 years ago. 14 years ago, they weren't making the connection between breast cancer treatment and weight gain. Mm-hmm. Like that was not a connection because most people that I meet that have have been in that kind of category, no one was warned mm-hmm. about potential weight gain where like now that's one of the primary things that they tell you up front, like mm-hmm. keep your same because I was fit and I had a good diet they were like keep your same diet like don't eat comfort food well it's so counterintuitive when you're like supposed to be doing the right things so your body can heal (laughs) and you're then gonna go oh I've got cancer anyway I'm gonna just eat a bunch of twiglets or or, not twiglets my husband's a Brit so twiglets are a British snack but you know twizzlers or whatever you know you just it's I don't I I can't see that but yeah, the thing is that even after when they, what they, I think needs to happen is there needs to be some, when we went through cancer, there were like mentors or people who kind of walked us through the process. 
And then, you know, every after treatment, you go frequently for checks. And then over time, as time passes, those checks become less and less as we get out of the risk time period. And then for me, like, you know, I don't necessarily even need to see my oncologist every year. I'm 14 years out today. But the thing is that I still choose to go every year because I think it's smart to do so. But it's their job to also update us on what are the things they know now about survivorship, about the things to be looking for. What should they be monitoring? In my case, anybody who's had the adriamycin chemotherapy needs to have a MUGA or, and they do it before you have treatment or once after or you're done with your chemotherapy, I don't remember which, to check your heart because it can weaken the heart muscle. Yeah. Well, I talked to my, I also have a cardiologist because of my stroke history. And that was a blessing because, you know, they worked in tandem, my cardiologist and my oncologist who happened to, I started seeing him first as my hematologist <laughs> because of my, my stroke and the fact that I was on blood thinners. But I asked him at the 10 year mark, I was like, do you think it would be smart to repeat the MUGA, you know, because supposedly it can damage the heart muscle. So, and so I'm proactive and I ask the questions, but not everybody does. They should just have a timeline. And they should also have updated information about the new findings for survivorship and confirming some of the things that we may not be able to put our finger on. Something's not right. What is this? Oh, yeah, I had chemotherapy five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And this could be a potential side effect. But there's a little bit of a kind of a you get to the edge and then there's a big drop and it's like, yes, it's the abyss. And nobody's kind of giving us information unless we know how to find it. So I think there's more to be done there. And I'm sure there are some long-term survivorship type of groups and stuff, but it should be really information that we're getting from our medical community as well. Um, and we should be on some kind of, maybe some kind of roster that gets informed as new things are found, some kind of database where we're kept informed as things are found based on our treatments, you know, but maybe that's for us to create. <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting that you say that. I actually was talking with a researcher a few weeks ago who is just in the early stages of investigating like the use of apps um, mm. and the potential for using apps um, mm. so that like, like in my case, I use a watch to mm. track my fitness. So, right, you've got one as well. So that sends data to like a portal and then I can look at like what my sleep look quality looks like and how many steps I'm really getting versus what I think I'm getting and where my heart rate is, right? Because it can kind of bounce around. And so being able to share that with our practitioners so that when we go in for appointments, they've got this kind of longitudinal data. Mm -hmm. to support how we're feeling or how we're not feeling or um so there is some of that starting to happen that's exciting in the when I was preparing for my TED talk I was shocked by how limited the resources and the research was in terms of survivorship guidance and there's a tool called the survivorship care plan 
is kind of the formal like tool in in from a medical practitioner perspective. And I was reading a research study that I want to say was conducted in like 2018, just a few years ago. And he didn't have a lot of data about the success of survivorship care plans because they were having challenges with getting medical practitioners on board with thinking that they worked. So then they, one of the biases in their, the result of their data was that if practitioners agreed to give their patients who were transitioning out of treatment into survivorship, these care plans, and the care plans include like all the things like mm. potential, potential long-term side effects, um, checkup schedules, like what doctors you need to be seeing, like for breast cancer. You want to also see your GYN and have your the GYN, your dermatologist, um, mm-hmm. melanoma also has a connection. Um, I have another client who's a nurse and, apparently um colon cancer can also have a connection so like my doctors now over the last couple of years have been saying early colonoscopy like ahead of the schedule because your cancer history says we want you to go do that mm. where that wasn't right away five years ago when I was diagnosed. Everyone wasn't like, okay, this is happening now. Let's go get this screening for you. That's just really kind of becoming more mainstream in the last couple of years. But those care plans can give you like, here's all the people you need to see. You need to see your general practitioner. Mm-hmm. These are the tests you should be getting every year. Like, But a barrier to that was practitioner buy-in they're not getting paid to do it they're not there's they are into crisis management they're into treating in the moment they don't want to have to think about the long term and so maybe that's someone else in their practice that is like a care navigator like we had breast care navigators maybe there's somebody who's a post-treatment navigator that steps in after the two-year mark or the whatever mark to kind of help you with the long-term stuff, but it definitely is something that needs to be done because too much, it's like us having to decide which electric company to go with, which phone company to go with. The onus is on the consumer, or in this case, the the patient to have to know everything and try to figure out what's important and what decisions to make. And that's just too much to ask in in this realm. It's just not really in everybody's capacity or, uh, you know, ability to be able to decipher everything they need to know and what's important. So yeah. it's really a disservice to the cancer community. You know? Absolutely. And like in the case of where my doctor had run my A1C and had commented on it, it wasn't connected to my cancer. Like she didn't say we're finding this and this is why I did it. Um, I happened to be out with with a couple of friends, a breast cancer survivor and a PT who's a lymphedema therapist. And I'm also a lymphedema therapist. And we were sitting having drinks one afternoon. And she commented 
on how many cases of diabetes she's seeing in breast cancer survivors. And I was like, excuse me? Mm. And then I was like, oh, is that why she ran my A1C? Like, and then in that moment, I was like, that's not okay. Like, why didn't some, why didn't, why wasn't that made more clear? Yeah, then you would know to monitor it, you know? Right. Yeah. So, and I think the other problem is in the medical community is everything is compartmentalized. And, and so the people aren't at the practitioners aren't talking to each other for the various parts of our bodies that need to be monitored. So, you know, the person who's monitoring your A1C is not talking to your oncologist to understand what treatments you had or to the, the um, radiologist to see what level of, you know, radiation you had, like I get intercostal pain for my radiation, you know, I, I get pain and I'm like, am I having a heart attack? You know, thankfully it was on my right side. So it was, wasn't over my heart, but still, you know, with women, heart pain can not be obvious. And so I have to remind myself that, you know, this is probably radiation pain. Um, you know, I have, permanent numbness under my arm where, you know, they took out my lymph nodes and did surgery. So there are things that, you know, aren't discussed. And I suspect in the beginning, they'd get a lot less compliance with treatment if people knew up front what the side effects were going to be, the long-term side effects. But I think that, you know, I think if people understand the trade-offs and say, okay, this is a manageable long-term you know, this could give me a long-term uh, quality of life that may not be perfect, but I'm, I'll still be here, you know, but at right. least I have a choice to say, oh, that's not worth it, or that's worth it. You know, it, it's my, or at least I know what to expect, you know, as, as I age, you know, um, that I might anticipate, I mean, the brain fog, I think is the thing that just kills me the most, it kills my husband because he just gets so <laughs> frustrated. Well, I told you, yesterday and I'm like but I can't remember chemo brain is real I was on a I was on a you know I'm a member of some of these Facebook groups private groups for triple negative breast cancer or breast cancer or, or whatever variety of groups that are in Facebook and these remind are remind really me great to tell you about one for the um intercostal pain okay thank you um so and I was like I don't live in those groups. Honestly, yeah. my cancer story now is a story in the sense that I, it doesn't really envelop my whole life. It's, For it's sure. part, it's, it's like me living in Italy. It was a thing that happened. <laughs> I try <laughs> not to let it kind of, you know, overshadow my life. Um, so, but I do sometimes see things pop up in the group in my notifications and that something caught my attention about chemo brain. And that definitely caught my attention. And when I read through the hundreds of comments of long-term thrivers, survivors who, you know, long out from their chemotherapy still have, you know, the, the memory loss or the yeah. inability to, you know, for short-term memory and things like that. I'm like, I went to my husband and it's like, look, I'm not imagining things. This is real. It, I called it pickling. I felt Pickled. When I went through chemotherapy, my body was pickled. Every bit of my body was infused with chemotherapy. Every cell, my DNA was altered. You know, I was pickled and including my brain. Yeah. And so it had to have an impact. 
I understand that, you know, but it's frustrating. You know, I literally was asked yesterday about something from Tuesday and I cannot remember what it was. Um, you know, the libido thing, you know, only uh, through one of those groups, there was a long discussion on libido. Nobody talked to me, not even my gynecologist talked to me about when I, you know, talk about loss of libido, they kind of blame it on menopause, but I lost my libido before menopause. Well, you know, for breast cancer, in most cases, the chemotherapy puts us into medical menopause. And then as young people, we come out of that. Yep. But we don't (laughs) necessarily completely come out of that. I mean, I've been told Mm -hmm. probably a half a dozen times that I'm postmenopausal and I'm not. Like, because my numbers are jumping all over the place. And that's what happens when you're perimenopausal, right? Yes, right. Postmenopausal, like if they pull, if they do a blood test, you look one way one day. And then the next Mm -hmm. day you look like, you know, as my oncologist said one day, a young lady. Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) one day you look like you're not in menopause. And another day you look like you're totally in menopause. And those could be like, days that are not very far apart mm-hmm. and yeah. now like I have people who are 14 plus years out and they were back in that time they were following you know kind of the normal menopause guidelines like if you go for a year mm-hmm. then you're yeah. in menopause postmenopausal yeah. done yep And now they don't do that anymore. Like I've been told two years, like after two years, we're probably going to consider you. Now, in my case, I was hormone positive. So like putting me on a hormone two years out because they think something's not, you know, thinks some, something's gone awry wouldn't Mm. be a possibility. Right. Um, But I think they're realizing people are going like longer periods of time Mm. and we've done something we've intervened they disrupted the natural process the system yeah yeah so i don't know about you but boy those fire ant feelings when i went through the medical menopause at at 41 i literally felt like i had fire ants all over my body i was like it was horrible and to, to think that i went out of it and i would go back into menopause again i became perimenopause i mean i was I actually, interestingly enough, you just helped me remember something. In February of that year, I went and saw my family doctor. She did not, first of all, she did not palpate that lump that I felt in April. That's how fast it came up from February to April. So that, first of all, is a very fast growing tumor. Two days before my mammogram, I had an appointment. No, there was no, I had three small, I had three small tumors very close to the surface, but they were Mm. below the nipple and they Mm. were somewhat camouflaged. Wow. But the other thing was I had went to her at 41 to say, I'm starting to get some spotting or this or that. And my mother went through menopause in her late forties. So we thought maybe I'm a little perimenopausal, you know? just the beginning signs. And then bam, April, you know, May diagnosis, the full shebang. Uh, I was done with all my treatments like end of January of 2008. But, you know, my body eventually kind of got somewhat back to normal. And then in February 2012, the systems just completely shut down. 
but the libido part, you know, once you've been through cancer, it's like, (laughs) you know, and, and so nobody talked about that. And I read, I actually cried as I read these people, these women talking about the challenges in their relationships because of the loss of libido, you know, you want to be close to your spouse and physically, you know, connect and all that, but literally it just shuts down. And then there are all the other issues that come around with your body not being, you know, a hundred percent or whatever. And so I went to him and I said, look, I'm really sorry that I didn't really, I, I said, I thought it was the chemo along with menopause, but I really had no control over this and I'm just sorry. And it was almost just relief to be able to say, look, this is, this is why. And he could, he could accept that and understand it. Whereas before it was very frustrating, you know? And so in a way we could have had that kind of, we would have had resources, looked at resources and they had a a shared understanding of what was going on. If someone had told me, you know, by the way, at any point in time in the last 14 years, the gynecologist, the oncologist, as that information became more apparent, somebody should have said, by the way, that could be a side effect of chemotherapy. And that it's normal. Yes. Because the, like, cancer and there can be so many different components that can open the door for us to feeling shame. Yeah. And when uh, Tara Galliano and I, um, back in September, talked about this because she actually is a sex therapist and has worked with a lot of breast cancer, mm-hmm. specifically uh, breast cancer, but other types of um, mm-hmm. cancer people who have gone through this. And the and she also um, actually wrote a book called Rediscovering My Body. And we mm-hmm. had a great conversation about all the different components of this and how mm-hmm. how it shows up. Yeah, um, physical, emotional. Yeah. And the alternatives, right? Like Mm -hmm. the, the alternatives to, and, and I think it's difficult as well. And this was something that she and I had talked about, like, there's an almost over like sexualization of the world at large. Like, Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions that I got from my community before I did that interview with her was like about frequency. Mm-hmm. because that is just something that you tend to see mm-hmm. um, dramatized or yes. talked about or and, and whether like what is the reality of that yes and so exactly. it's so you know when something's like in your face and you're struggling with it it becomes and you feel like you're not bigger. fitting in with what seems to be the norm but then right. it's it's all really comes down to intimacy and that's Yes, that's the thing that we can work on is intimacy versus, you know, sometimes the mechanical aspects or whatever the physical. So it's it was more of just feeling robbed of the information that could have helped. Yeah, us as a couple to kind of be on the same page, you know? Yeah, it gives us a shared language. Yeah, yeah. And a shared level of expectations, too. I mean, it's just the same theme, really, with the brain fog, with the diabetes. It's just a question of getting the information to because the doctors are doing their job to get us to the point where we can, you know, resume some sense of normalcy. But there's 
a missing link, which is the communication to help us know how to navigate life in long-term recovery with all the potential side effects and be able to still have a quality of life. And, and be able to kind of own, like, I've, I've heard you, I've heard you kind of say, like you say to your husband, brain fog is real. Like I say the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that has become like a joke between us. Like he'll say, I told you that I, it was in my email three days ago. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Like a footnote in your email is not telling me. Because now that you're saying that somewhere in my brain, I recall it. But my recall is not great. Yeah. And you know this, like I own chemo brain forever. (laughs) And I hope it improves. But if it doesn't, I'm sorry. (laughs) And I told my husband, it's like if I was missing an arm, you wouldn't expect me to do things with that arm that I don't have. You have to understand it's a disability. And I think that is an important Thing to understand to help people who are going through what we're going through is that chemotherapy treatments can create long-term disabilities. That yeah. doesn't mean we can't function in life, but we can end up with disabilities that could potentially also allow us some certain accommodations in work, in in certain other sectors. Um, you know, someone with lymphedema may lose the mobility of an arm or you know, some people get it in their leg, depending on where their lymph nodes were, you know, there are sometimes it's easier to accept physical visible disabilities than it is mental ones. I, 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 um, deal with ADHD and it has its challenges. It's a disability or it's an asset. Actually, I consider it an asset. It gives me a different way to see life and do things, but, you know, in a world that is kind of, of a certain capacity of of how they think or how they do things, those differences aren't celebrated. They're considered, you know, challenges. And yet there aren't accommodations and the accommodations have to start at home. And even I think sometimes the accommodations have to start with us coming to terms with those, those changes and owning up to them and telling people, Hey, this is a side effect of chemotherapy. It's what I work, have to work with. So this is just how we have to get on with things, you know? There's an interesting, um, you brought up ADHD. And I have talked with a number of people who have post-breast cancer treatment been diagnosed ADHD. Mm. And where they may have been you know, living with it. And I, I have not been officially diagnosed, but I definitely see like the tension span thing is challenging. And (laughs) I could manage it better before treatment. And now like I'm reaching a point where it's like, ah, this is becoming an impediment to like, I need some more tools here. But Yeah. yeah, so that that is another potential Um, I haven't seen like research statistics on it, Mm -hmm. but I've heard enough like anecdotal stories. That goes back to the pickled brain. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. So, oh my gosh, the time goes so fast, but I want to make sure that um, I give you a moment to talk about um, the Barnett Searing National Cancer Foundation and the great work. I know you're on the board there and they're doing great work. So I would love to give you a moment to Mm -hmm. talk about that. 
Thank you so much. I'll keep it pretty short. I was just invited into the board um, last year on their first uh, post-cancer board member. It was started by two gentlemen, who one who lost his mother to cancer and the other who lost his sister to cancer. And this is their 20th anniversary year. They were founded in 2001. Uh, so that's really kind of special. They've done a lot of good in the last 20 years. It's a Virginia, I think primarily Virginia-based, but it, they reach out around the country. And now they even have some international reach. Um, and what they focus on is um, just comforting and supporting cancer patients and, and their families with random acts of kindness, including sh- sharing these smile kits, which is lines spelled backwards. And so when life gives you lines, you, you know, turn it around and make a smile, right? So the um, smile kits are a collection of comforting items that would be, you know, nice for someone who's going through cancer. We focus primarily on women at, at Barnett Searing. Um, and there are things like fuzzy socks and blankies and coloring books, it's just some really thoughtful things. And the best part is handmade cards that volunteers make. And, you know, a friend of mine uh, who passed last summer, I saw her in March and we didn't even know her cancer was back when I saw her. It was her third round, her third wow. diagnosis. And she was originally diagnosed with me. We were both in Italy together. She ended up with a uh, colorectal cancer and I had breast cancer diagnosis and I saw her in March and she had all her little cards lined up on the windowsill and she showed me all the goodies and just warmed my heart to see it put a smile on her face and so some of these cards are handmade some are done with cricket a lot of students do them as like for volunteer hours people who've lost someone to cancer do it as a way to pay it forward it's just a lovely community of people pouring love and support bringing positive messages to people women going through cancer and they um you can get to them through um, www.bsncf so that's for barnett searing national cancer cancer foundation.org and you can either donate to support these smile kits i think they a twenty dollar donation can come help come cover a smile kit because then we we put them in a bag we have to post them and you can also go to nominate somebody who is has been diagnosed with cancer uh, through the, uh, the portal there. And if you know somebody who has a cancer story, um, they do also have um, a page where you can share your story. And so you can find my story on the Barnett Searing uh, website as well. Um, and then just the last thing is we have every spring, so I don't know if this podcast will be out in time, but in mm-hmm. the, the Memorial Day weekend, there will be a 5K walk run it's virtual. You can do it from wherever you are. Uh, for those in the Reston Herndon area, we'll be walking at a safe, socially distant way in Reston. And that they're fundraising for that. And if you want to donate to me or donate or start your own team or just support in any way, shape or form, uh, that's happening Memorial Day weekend. Uh, so it's a, a great way to support us um, in all that we do. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. We can add that into the... Uh, surviving is just the beginning Facebook group as well. Um, so that people have that, have access to that there. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. The time always goes so fast. It does. It does. 
does. Thank you so much. It's been really an honor uh, and a privilege to be here with you today and to hopefully have say, have shared something that helps someone have a, a better day and some hope in their day for a brighter tomorrow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. I have been on a mission this year to interview new guests every week to bring more connection and share more stories of cancer survivors, caregivers, and support organizations like Barnett Searing. Whether you think that you may want to share your story on the podcast, or if you just want to share with me directly, you can connect with me in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, where you can also connect with Athena. She is there as well. Um, and other past guests and group members. Or you can look for the coffee chat link in the show description where you listen to your podcast. Knowing that there are others with similar experiences really helps us know that we're not alone and that there's a community of people with similar and diverse experiences that are waiting to meet you because surviving really is just the beginning. So thanks for listening and have a great week. Mm -hmm.